On Strikes by Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. On Strikes was written at the end of 1899 and first published in 1924 in the magazine Proletarskia Revolutia. The following article can be found and credit to Marxist Internet Archive. In recent years, workers' strikes have become extremely frequent in Russia. There is no longer a single industrial guberna in which there have not occurred several strikes. And in the big cities, strikes never cease. It is understandable, therefore, that class-conscious workers and socialists should more and more frequently concern themselves with the question of the significance of strikes, of methods of conducting them, and of the tasks of socialists participating in them. We wish to attempt to outline some of our ideas on these questions. In our first article, we plan to deal generally with the significance of strikes in the working class movement. In the second, we shall deal with anti-strike laws in Russia. And in the third, with the way strikes were and are conducted in Russia, and with the attitude that class-conscious workers should adopt to them. In the first place, we must seek an explanation for the outbreak and spread of strikes. Everyone who calls to mind strikes from personal experience, from reports of others or from the newspapers, will see immediately that strikes break out and spread wherever big factories arise and grow in number. It would scarcely be possible to find a single one among the bigger factories employing hundreds, and at times even thousands, of workers in which strikes have not occurred. When there were only a few big factories in Russia, there were few strikes. But ever since big factories have been multiplying rapidly in both the old industrial districts and in new towns and villages, strikes have become more frequent. Why is it that large-scale factory production always leads to strikes? It is because capitalism must necessarily lead to a struggle of the workers against the employers. And when production is on a large scale, the struggle of necessity takes on the form of strikes. Let us explain this. Capitalism is the name given to that social system under which the land, factories, implements, etc. belong to a small number of landed proprietors and capitalists, while the mass of the people possesses no property or very little property, and is compelled to hire itself out as workers. The landowners and factory owners hire workers and make them produce wares of this or that kind, which they sell on the market. The factory owners, therefore, pay the workers only such a wage as provides a bare subsistence for them and their families. While everything the worker produces over and above this amount goes into the factory owner's pocket as his profit. Under capitalist economy, therefore, the people in their mass are the hired workers of others. They do not work for themselves, but work for employers for wages. 
It is understandable that the employers always try to reduce wages. The less they give the workers, the greater their profit. The workers try to get the highest possible wage in order to provide their families with sufficient and wholesome food, to live in good homes and to dress as other people do and not like beggars. A constant struggle is, therefore, going on between employers and workers over wages. The employer is free to hire whatever worker he thinks fit and therefore seeks the cheapest. The worker is free to hire himself out to an employer of his choice so that he seeks the dearest, the one that will pay him the most. Whether the worker works in the country or in the town, whether he hires himself out to a landlord, a rich peasant, a contractor or a factory owner, he always bargains with the employer, fights with him over the wages. But is it possible for a single worker to wage a struggle by himself? The number of working people is increasing. Peasants are being ruined and flee from the countryside to the town or the factory. The landlords and factory owners are introducing machines that rob the workers of their jobs. In the cities, there are increasing numbers of unemployed and in the villages, there are more and more beggars. Those who are hungry drive wages down lower and lower. It becomes impossible for the worker to fight against the employer by himself. If the worker demands good wages or tries not to consent to a wage cut, the employer tells him to get out. That there are plenty of hungry people at the gates who would be glad to work for low wages. When the people are ruined to such an extent that there is always a large number of unemployed in the towns and villages, when the factory owners amass huge fortunes and the small proprietors are squeezed out by the millionaires, the individual worker becomes absolutely powerless in the face of the capitalist. It then becomes possible for the capitalist to crush the worker completely, to drive him to his death at slave labour, and, indeed, not him alone, but his wife and children with him. If we take, for instance, those occupations in which the workers have not yet been able to win the protection of the law, and in which they cannot offer resistance to the capitalists. We see an inordinately long working day, sometimes as long as 17 to 19 hours. We see children of five or six years of age overstraining themselves at work. We see a generation of permanently hungry workers who are gradually dying from starvation. Example, the workers who toil in their own homes for capitalists. Besides, any worker can bring to mind a host of other examples. Even under slavery or serfdom, there was never any oppression of the working people as terrible as that under capitalism, when the workers cannot put up a resistance or cannot win the protection of laws that restrict the arbitrary actions of the employers. And so, in order to stave off their reduction to such extremities, 
the workers begin a desperate struggle. As they see that each of them individually is completely powerless and that the oppression of capital threatens to crush him, the workers begin to revolt jointly against their employers. Workers' strikes begin. At first, the workers often fail to realise what they are trying to achieve. Lacking consciousness of the wherefore of their action, they simply smash the machines and destroy the factories. They merely want to display their wrath to the factory owners. They are trying out their joint strength in order to get out of an unbearable situation without yet understanding why their position is so hopeless and what they should strive for. In all countries, the wrath of the workers first took the form of isolated revolts. The police and factory owners in Russia call them mutinies. In all other countries, these isolated revolts gave rise to more or less peaceful strikes on the one hand, and to the all-sided struggle of the working class for its emancipation on the other. What significance have strikes or stoppages for the struggle of the working class? To answer this question, we must first have a fuller view of strikes. The wages of a worker are determined, as we have seen, by an agreement between the employer and the worker, and if, under these circumstances, the individual worker is completely powerless, it is obvious that workers must fight jointly for their demands. They are compelled to organise strikes, either to prevent the employers from reducing wages or to obtain higher wages. It is a fact that in every country with a capitalist system, there are strikes of workers. Everywhere, in all the European countries and in America, the workers feel themselves powerless when they are disunited. They can only offer resistance to the employers jointly, either by striking or threatening to strike. As capitalism develops, as big factories are more rapidly opened, as the petty capitalists are more and more ousted by the big capitalists, the more urgent becomes the need for the joint resistance of the workers, because unemployment increases, competition sharpens between the capitalists who strive to produce their wares at the cheapest to do which they have to pay the worker as little as possible, and the fluctuations of industry become more accentuated and crisis more acute. At the time, Russia industrial affairs had been going well, industry had been prospering, but that now, at the end of 1899, there are already clear signs that this prosperity will end in a crisis, difficulties in marketing goods, bankruptcies of factory owners, the ruin of petty proprietors, and terrible calamities for the workers, unemployment, reduced wages, etc. When industry prospers, the factory owners make big profits, but do not think of sharing them with the workers. But when a crisis breaks out, the factory owners try to push the losses onto the workers. The necessity for strikes in capitalist society has been recognised to such an extent by everybody in the European countries 
that the law in those countries does not forbid the organization of strikes. Only in Russia, barbarous laws against strikes still remain in force. We shall speak on another occasion of these laws and their application. However, strikes, which arise out of the very nature of capitalist society, signify the beginning of the working class struggle against the system of society. When the rich capitalists are confronted by individual propertyless workers, this signifies the utter enslavement of the workers. But when those propertyless workers unite, the situation changes. There is no wealth that can be of benefit to the capitalists if they cannot find workers willing to apply their labour power to the instruments and materials belonging to the capitalists and produce new wealth. As long as workers have to deal with capitalists on an individual basis, they remain veritable slaves who must work continuously to profit another in order to obtain a crust of bread, who must forever remain docile and inarticulate hired servants. But when the workers state their demands jointly and refuse to submit to the money bags, they cease to be slaves. They become human beings. They begin to demand that their labour should not only serve to enrich a handful of idlers, but should also enable those who work to live like human beings. The slaves begin to put forward the demand to become masters not to work and live as the landlords and capitalists want them to, but as the working people themselves want to. Strikes, therefore, always instill fear into the capitalists because they begin to undermine their supremacy. All wheels stand still if your mighty arm wills it, a German worker's song says of the working class. And so it is, in reality, the factories, the landlord's land, the machines, the railways, etc., etc., are all like wheels in a giant machine, the machine that extracts various products, processes them, and delivers them to their destination. The whole of this machine is set in motion by the worker who tills the soil, extracts ores, makes commodities in the factories builds houses, workshops and railways. When the workers refuse to work, the entire machine threatens to stop. Every strike reminds the capitalist that it is the workers and not they who are the real masters, the workers who are more and more loudly proclaiming their rights. Every strike reminds the workers that their position is not hopeless, that they are not alone. See what a tremendous effect strikes have both on the strikers themselves and on the workers at neighbouring or nearby factories or at factories in the same industry. In normal, peaceful times, the worker does his job without a murmur, does not contradict the employer, does not discuss his condition. In times of strikes, he states his demand in a loud voice, He reminds the employers of all their abuses. He claims his rights. He does not think of himself and his wages alone. He thinks of all his workmates, 
who have downed tools together with him and who stand up for the workers' cause, fearing no privations. Every strike means many privations for the working people, terrible privations that can be compared only to the calamities of war. Hungry families, loss of wages, often arrests, banishment from the towns where they have their homes or their employment. Despite all these sufferings, the workers despise those who desert their fellow workers and make deals with the employers. Despite all these sufferings brought on by strikes, the workers of neighbouring factories gain renewed courage when they see that their comrades have engaged themselves in struggle. People who endure so much to bend one single bourgeois will be able to break the power of the whole bourgeoisie, said one great teacher of socialism, Engels, speaking of the strikes of the English workers. It is often enough for one factory to strike, for strikes to begin immediately in a large number of factories. What a great moral influence strikes have, how they affect workers who see their comrades have ceased to be slaves and, if only for the time being, have become people on an equal footing with the rich. Every strike brings thoughts of socialism very forcibly to the worker's mind. Thoughts of the struggle of the entire working class for emancipation from the oppression of capital. It has often happened that before a big strike, the workers of a certain factory or a certain branch of industry or of a certain town knew hardly anything and scarcely ever thought about socialism. But after the strike, study circles and associations become much more widespread among them and more and more workers become socialists. A strike teaches workers to understand that the strength of the employers and what the strength of the workers consists in. It teaches them not to think of their own employer alone and not of their own immediate workmates alone, but of all the employers the whole class of capitalists, and the whole class of workers. When a factory owner who has amassed millions from the toil of several generations of workers refuses to grant a modest increase in wages, or even tries to reduce wages to a still lower level, and if the workers offer resistance, throws thousands of hungry families out onto the street, it becomes quite clear to the workers that the capitalist class as a whole is the enemy of the whole working class and that the workers can depend only on themselves and their united action. It often happens that a factory owner does his best to deceive the workers, to pose as a benefactor and conceal his exploitation of the workers by some petty sops of lying promises. A strike always demolishes this deception at one blow by showing the workers that their benefactor is a wolf in sheep's clothing. A strike, moreover, opens the eyes of the workers to the nature not only of the capitalists, but of the government and the laws as well. Just as the factory owners try to pose as benefactors of the workers, the government officials and their lackeys try to assure the workers that the Tsar and the Tsarist government are equally solicitous of both the factory owners 
and the workers as justice requires. The worker does not know the laws. He has no contact with government officials, especially with those in the higher posts, and as a consequence, and often believes all this, then a strike comes. The public prosecutor, the factory inspector, the police, and frequently troops appear at the factory. The workers learn that they have violated the law. The employers are permitted by law to assemble and openly discuss ways of reducing workers' wages. But workers are declared criminals if they come to a joint agreement. Workers are driven out of their homes. The police close the shops from which the workers might obtain food on credit. An effort is made to incite the soldiers against the workers, even when the workers conduct themselves quietly and peacefully. Soldiers are even ordered to fire on the workers. And when they kill unarmed workers by shooting the fleeing crowd in the back, the Tsar himself sends the troops an expression of his gratitude. In this way, the Tsar thanked the troop who had killed striking workers in Yuroslav in 1895. It becomes clear to every worker that the Tsarist government is his worst enemy, since it defends the capitalists and binds the workers hand and foot. The workers begin to understand that laws are made in the interests of the rich alone, that government officials protect those interests, that the working people are gagged and not allowed to make their own needs, that the working class must win for itself the right to strike, the right to publish workers' newspapers, the right to participate in a national assembly that enacts laws and supervises their fulfilment. The government itself knows full well that strikes open the eyes of the workers. For this reason, it has such a fear of strikes and does everything to stop them as quickly as possible. One German minister of the interior, one who was notorious for the persistent persecution of socialists and class-conscious workers, not without reason, stated before the people's representatives, Behind every strike lurks the hydra, monster, of every revolution. Every strike strengthens and develops in the workers the understanding that the government is their enemy and the working class must prepare itself to struggle against the workers' government for the people's rights. Strikes therefore teach the workers to unite. They show them that they can struggle against the capitalists only when they are united. Strikes teach the workers to think of the struggle of the whole working class against the whole class of factory owners and against the arbitrary police government. This is the reason that socialists call strikes a school of war, a school in which the workers learn to make war on their enemies for the liberation of the whole people, of all who labour from the yoke of government officials and from the yoke of capital. A school of war is, however, not war itself. When strikes are widespread among the workers, some of the workers, including some socialists, begin to believe that the working class can confine itself to strikes, strike funds or strike associations alone, that by strikes alone the working class can achieve a considerable improvement in its conditions or even its emancipation. 
when they see what power there is in a united working class, and even in small strikes. Some think that the working class has only to organise a general strike throughout the whole country for the workers to get everything they want from the capitalists and the government. The idea was also expressed by the workers of other countries when the working class movement was in its early stages and the workers were still very inexperienced. It is a mistaken idea. Strikes are one of the ways in which the working class struggles for its emancipation, but they are not the only way, and if the workers do not turn their attention to other means of conducting the struggle, they will slow down the growth and the success of the working class. It is true that funds are needed to maintain the workers during strikes, if strikes are to be successful. Such workers' funds, usually funds of workers in separate branches of industry, separate trades or workshops, are maintained in all countries. But here in Russia, this is especially difficult, because the police keep track of them, seize the money and arrest the workers. The workers, of course, are able to hide from the police. Naturally, the organisation of such funds is valuable, and we do not want to advise workers against setting them up. But it must not be supposed that workers' funds, when prohibited by law, will attract large numbers of contributors, and so long as the membership in such organisations is small, workers' funds will not prove of great use. Furthermore, even in those countries where workers' unions exist openly, and have huge funds at their disposal, the working class can still not confine itself to strikes as a means of struggle. All that is necessary is a hitch in the affairs of industry, a crisis such as the one that is approaching in Russia today, and the factory owners will even deliberately cause strikes because it is in their interest to cease work for a time and to deplete the workers' funds. The workers, therefore, cannot, under any circumstances, confine themselves to strike actions and strike associations. Secondly, strikes can only be successful where workers are sufficiently class conscious, where they are able to select an opportune moment for striking, where they know how to put forward their demands and where they have connections with socialists and are able to procure leaflets and pamphlets through them. There are still very such workers in Russia, and every effort must be exerted to increase their number in order to make the working class cause known to the masses of workers and to acquaint them with socialism and the working class struggle. This is a task that socialists and class-conscious workers must undertake jointly by organising a socialist working class party for this purpose. Thirdly, strikes as we have seen show the workers that the government is their enemy and that a struggle against the government must be carried on. Actually, it is strikes that have gradually taught the working class of all countries to struggle against the government for workers' rights and for the rights of the people as a whole. As we have said, 
only a socialist workers' party can carry on the struggle by spreading among the workers a true conception of the government and of the working class cause. On another occasion, we shall discuss specifically how strikes are conducted in Russia and how class-conscious workers should avail themselves of them. Here we must point out that strikes are, as we said above, a school of war and not the war itself, that strikes are only one means of struggle, only one aspect of the working class movement. From individual strikes, the workers can and must go over, as indeed they are actually doing in all countries, to a struggle of the entire working class for the emancipation of all who labour. When all class-conscious workers become socialists, i.e., when they strive for this emancipation, when they unite throughout the whole country in order to spread socialism among the workers, in order to teach the workers of all the means of struggle against their enemies, when they build up a socialist workers' party that struggles for the emancipation of the people as a whole from government oppression and for the emancipation of all working people from the yoke of capital. Only then will the working class become an integral part of that great movement of the workers of all countries that unites all workers and raises the red banner inscribed with the words, workers of all countries unite. Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs, revolutionary history, and theory. Do like, comment, subscribe, and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization with limited resources, and we need workers' support if we are to grow and fulfill our mission. If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, please visit our website at thecommunists.org and register as a supporter.